time for Coffee with the Chicken Ladies, a podcast for people who love chickens. Hey, everybody, and welcome. It's Chrissy and Holly from Coffee with the Chicken Ladies. We're here, and this is episode number 65 of our podcast, where we talk about everything chicken, family, fun, and more chickens. More chickens. We drink a ton of coffee. I'm talking a ton. But most importantly, we hug chickens every day. And we kiss them too. Don't forget. We're drinking lots of coffee. Holly Ann, what kind of coffee are we brewing today? Oh, this is a gift. This is from Kathy. This is chicory coffee from Cafe Du Monde in New Orleans. And it is delicious. Thank you, Kathy, for the coffee. Are you ready to sip some coffee and chat? I am. Let's do this. How are you doing today? Great. How are you? I cannot complain. Had some warm days out there. We all know how I feel about winter. Yeah, I've been doing some deep cleans on the coops, and I'm starting to work on the gardens that are going in my front lawn this I year. Am. I love it when it warms up a little bit. We've had a few days, like 60. Yeah, really temperate. It's been lovely. I'm going to run out of bikini. <laughs> no, that's just a joke, everyone. Holly, and you didn't laugh at my joke. I'm laughing inside. <laughs> so yeah, we've had a few nice days, so that starts us thinking about gardening. I have to deadhead all my flowers that are in the gardens. Yeah. I actually leave some of them go because I know the birds eat the thistle off the, some of Oh, the yeah. There are a lot of insects that will overwinter on that kind of stuff, too. Yeah. I mean, the gardens always look so bad at our house in the winter. I'm like, oh, don't look. But in the warm days, I like to get out there. Absolutely. So anything new on your horizons over there? Putting in the gardens in the front of my house, which, you know, we, we started that project last year. Oh, yeah. I'm really excited about getting some of these plants in the ground. And, you know, preparations for chicks. We're waiting. Chick fever. Chick fever. Yeah. Yeah. It's got its own theme song now. Apparently. Yeah. So we're just happy about it. Warming up. We hope everyone's having just as much time in the warm weather yeah. as we are. So why don't we ask everybody a huge favor. If you're listening to our show and you're loving it, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a written review. It does amazing things for our show. And we actually love to read these. We do. If you're looking for other ways to support the show, you can check out our Etsy shop, see what we have on offer there. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash coffee with the chicken ladies. You can check out our levels of membership and the benefits that come with them. One of the benefits for the top two tiers is a monthly bonus episode. And the other thing is for the top tier, you get a monthly Zoom call. And if you have any chicken questions, yeah. that is the time to bring them. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. You can share your favorite episodes on social media. The other thing you can do to help support the podcast is go to our show notes, use our affiliate links, and buy products from our sponsors. Yay! We have some exciting news to share from our sponsor, Grubly Farms. From now until the end of February, you can receive 20% off if you're a first-time buyer. I'm a long-time subscriber, and my flock love the healthy and nutritious grubs, plus all products ship free. If you haven't heard, Grubly's has a fantastic layer pellet and crumble feed. It's packed with plant and insect protein, perfect for those picky chickens and ducks. This offer does not apply to subscriptions and cannot come out with any other discounts. It's a great time to try Grubly Farms if you haven't yet. Use the code COFFEE20. Try it today. Hey, Chris. Yeah. Do you like subscription boxes? Does it have anything to do with chickens? Of course. Then, yeah. Let me take a minute to tell everybody about the Chicken Love Box. If you love goodies for your chickens and you, you need to go to chickenlove.com. I love Omega Box. Tons of useful products and a chicken tea for me. You can't go wrong with the chicken tea. It's so cute and so soft. In the February box, I absolutely love the comb balm and the Valentine's Day chicken mug. I adore that chicken pathogen poster from Chicken DVM. And that cookie, it's so adorable. I am never going to eat it. Boxes start at $39 a month. They ship immediately after your purchase and shipping is always free. For the month of February, a portion of all sales will be donated to Adopt-A-Bird Network. It's such a great deal. Don't wait. Get off the nest and click already. That's chickenlove.com. That's chickenluv.com. Get your subscription today. And now it's time for... La, 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 like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I crack myself up and they sound really bad, but it makes me happy. First so. rule of comedy. <laughs> Gotta please yourself. Thank you everybody for bearing with my breeze spotlight intros. 
Okay, so this week's Breed Spotlight is... This week's a little different than what we usually do. We're profiling the Pekin. Now, here in the U.S., we call them Coach and Bantams. Yes, we do. The rest of the world are Pekins. And so the big question here is, are the Coach and Bantams in the U.S. actually Pekins? And is the Pekin a distinct breed? So as we said, in the UK and the rest of the world, what we call Cochin Bantams are known as Pekins, and they are believed to be true Bantams with no large counterpart. Correct. So we'll go back in history a little bit. The large fail Cochins, what we know as Cochins, were documented to be imported to the UK for the first time in 1847. Okay. According to Miss A.C. Crowe, now Miss Crowe is the... She's one of your favorites. She really is. She's the one who worked on the Langshan breed, and she wrote right. a whole book about the Langshans. Now, according to her, in that book, Pekins were first imported to the UK in 1861. Okay. After the burning of the Summer Palace in Peking, which is modern-day Beijing, right. China. The Pekins arrived in Europe as a bantam breed. They were not bred down for larger fowl, like a lot of the bantams that we know of. Correct. It's hard to know how or when they were developed in China, just that they were kept by the last imperial dynasty, which is the Qing dynasty. That's the one everybody's heard of. Yeah. Okay, so in the United States, the American Poultry Association Standard of Perfection calls for the Cochin Bantams to follow the breed standard that they set up for the large fowl Cochins. Okay. But I did some detective work, and the Bantam Cochins actually were present in the original printing of the Standards of Perfections in 1874. They were also in the 1891 printing, but they were called Pekins as well as Cochin Bantams. Right. That's what we've always thought, that there were two names. Exactly. There's a book that was published in 1888 by a man named John Taggart. It's called The New American Poultry Book. He refers to the Pekins as a true Bantam breed. Okay. So there's another person saying, yeah, these are distinct. The weird thing is somewhere along the way, they disappeared from the American Poultry Association shows. They completely disappeared. So there were Cochins, but no Bantam Exactly. Cochins. The large fowl were there, but no Bantams, either okay. under the name Pekin or Cochin Bantam. They were gone. They show back up again in 1965. Okay. The Pekin has been dropped. They're just Bantam Cochins. This was also interesting. In the UK and Australia, the Pekin have their own standard of perfection that doesn't correspond exactly to the large Cochins. Okay. I mean, they do look just like They look pretty similar. <laughs> I know. They do look pretty similar. They do. So let's tell people what they look like. Cute. They really Aren't they cute? <laughs> they really are. They're one of your favorites. They, they've got feathered legs. They're fluffy. They look like a large cochin to me, but little. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, they're pretty similar. This is getting in the fussy category right here. But unlike some birds with feathered feet, they have their middle toe and their outer toes are feathered. It's like they have tons of foot and leg feathers. Actually, they do. So if you would compare them to, let's just say, we both have salmon faverals. Right. The salmon faverals' legs and feet are not as feathered as the coat. Exactly. It's basically the two toes on the side. Yeah. You notice that? Yeah. And the pecans definitely have more feathered legs and feet. They really do. I compare them to this, and I've said this before, from Beauty and the Beast, they are the feather duster. Uh, I can't argue with that. So their tail is a little different than a lot of other chickens, too. The tail feathers are shorter. It's like a big pull. It is. And so they curl and they make this wide, soft cushion. It looks like a huge pillow. It does. It. Yeah. I mean, it looks like they could sit down on it and it would be comfortable. I'm going to read this little description that I found. This is supposed to be the thing that differentiates the confirmation of the Pekins for the confirmation with the large size cochins. Okay. And it's supposed to be one of the things that proves that our cochin bantams really are pecans. Okay. The difference in confirmation is that pecans are more round and their carriage tilts forward. Their head is slightly closer to the ground than their tail feathers. So instead of a U, their head is down further. This tilt is considered a key characteristic of the pecan. So the head tilts forward. So that's supposed to be this really obvious difference between the Pekins and the Cochins. But the tail is also still supposed to have that great big wide cushion look to it. I don't know. They look the same to me. You look at it and they don't look like a U-shape from the side. The Pekins. Yeah, the head is lower. I mean, I can kind of see it. 
I think it's a but small distinction. Really. It's very tiny distinction. I mean, they really look a lot like. I think some of the historical stuff really proves that they were a distinct breed. At some point. At some point. But are they now? That's the question. That is the question. So it looks like the Pekins came out of China as they are. Right. But the Cochins, when they came out of China, they weren't exactly like they look like today. So they were developed more. And the reason I'm saying that is because, like, let's say our benchmark is 1860. Yeah. In 1860, the Pekins looked the same as they do today. Okay. In 1860, the large fell Cochin did not look exactly the same way they do today. Right. So that makes me feel like the large fell Cochin probably was not bred down to produce the Pekin. It already existed. So you're saying the Pekin evolved into the Bantam Cochin. I'm saying that they're probably the same bird. Yes. We've just renamed it. Yeah, right. exactly. Exactly. And again, early on, we did call them Pekins here in the U.S. We just dropped it somewhere during the 20th century. The differences are so slight. I agree. And I get it. They are different. Yeah. So let's go into, does the Pekin make a good pet? Actually, it does. They do. Yeah. They're known to be very gentle and friendly, which we know. Yes. And I've almost walked away from many I know. with that. <laughs> The other thing is, they're not great layers. No, they do around 100. Poor. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all know I, I, this is one of right. the things I do. I give below average, average, above average. They're going to be my below average, but they're going to be a companion. Right. About 100 white to cream eggs a year, which breaks down to about two per week. They're purse chickens. They, they kind of are purse chickens. The hens will go broody, and they're supposed to make great mothers. And that's like a lot of the other true bantams. Yeah, so exactly. there is that. Now, this was interesting to me, and I don't know if this makes a huge difference, but the egg colors are different in the Cochin and the Pekin. It might make a little bit of a difference. But then there's another argument there. In bantams, the oviduct is a lot shorter. And so bantams don't tend to have dark eggs because the oviduct is shorter. It doesn't have enough time for pigment. Exactly, right. So I don't know if that matters or not in this whole argument. Which it might. It might, yeah. Part of this is just semantics. We call them bantam cochins. They probably are Pekins. They, you know, that is probably their breed. Right. But, you know, whether we prove it or not, I don't know that we're going to convince well, those people. Well, where you are. I mean, yeah. We're the only ones that call them that, though. The rest the of the world, they're Pekins. Yeah. yeah. So cold hardy. Which I can tell with all those feathers. Right. But they're small body chickens, so they should probably... I mean, they're bantams. Yeah. So you so. should be checking for condition in cold weather in case you do need heat. They don't look like they should ever need heat, but if they weigh the less is, than two pounds... They're over feathered. So in between each feathers, we know that they puff and they right. hold warm air. Yeah. So they're better at regulating in the cold than, let's say, your nankins. Exactly. Your nankins probably have half the feathers of these Right, chickens. right. So, so I would keep an eye on them if you're in a really cold place. The other thing is you need to make special provisions for bantams. Yeah. They're one to two pound chickens. Right. They aren't a normal seven to eight pound chicken that can handle exactly. rough conditions outside. Bantams are usually good in the heat, but with all these feathers, you might want to keep an eye on these guys in the summer too. These guys need to live in like somewhere where it's 70 degrees every day. It's very temperate. <laughs> uh, the other thing I just want to note about them is you probably need to keep them away from mud and ice. Because yeah, because of the feathers on the they're feet. They're so heavily feathered on the feet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anything that can get on there, even with our favorals, uh -huh. we always check in the feet every day. Oh, yeah. To see if there's mud or anything in between yep. the feathers and the toes. If you get frozen mud, it can cause frostbite. And it's, yeah. it will be a very painful spot for frostbite. So here's the exciting part colors. They come in every color of the rainbow. Pretty much. They are very popular. They're adorable. Because of their personality and because they're so adorable, yeah. everybody wants them. Yeah. Hey, I'm one of them. Yes. You know I love the Cochins. I would certainly... Will they get along with Seabrights? I don't see why they would. Why wouldn't they? <laughs> I mean, my little bantam flock, I cannot wait. It's going to be so cute. Yeah, really. Okay, let's give you the color breakdown. Go ahead. Black. White. Red. Blue. Buff. Splash. Mottled. Birchin, Partridge, Bard or Cuckoo, Colombian, Gold Laced, Silver Laced. Yeah. That's a lot of colors. They're cute. They're really cute. Bottom now, line is they're adorable. In the U.S., they can be frizzled. I'm not sure about the rest of the world because in the U.S., the APA allows you to show frizzled chickens in their own breed category. Even if you got a little roux, man, you would be cute. It would be cute. I'm going to tell a quick story right now. This is the story of the Pekin where they were taken from their native China and spread to the rest of the world. So the story is the Summer Palace was in Beijing. Then it was called Peking. 
It was a large compound of palaces and gardens, and it was built by the Qing dynasty, which was that last imperial dynasty. Right. In the mid-1800s, the British Empire had a huge presence in China, and there were several struggles between the Chinese and the English over Britain's growing opium trade. Not good. Right. The imperial family and Chinese officials were worried about, and rightly so, the growing number of Chinese people who were becoming addicted to opium. Yeah. So there was fighting that broke out, and at some point, there was a British journalist who was killed and tortured. This story is not taking a good It's good not a great story, but we'll get through it. The story goes that the journalist was a friend of Lord Elgin. Our listeners in the UK and visitors to the British Museum will recognize the name Elgin. This is Lord Elgin's son, the eighth Lord Elgin. He was in charge of British forces in China. Essentially, after this friend of his was killed, he ordered the British troops to burn the Summer Palace. French troops joined in, and before long, there was burning, pillaging, and looting. Priceless works of art and historical treasures were stolen and made their way to Europe. But this is the part that's interesting to me. So in the book, The Langshan Fail, Miss Crowed, she was apparently there. And she wow. descri- yeah, she describes a scene from the Summer Palace destruction. She really was an excellent witness. She specifically mentions the charming pets of the imperial family, the Pekin chickens that were looted and sent to England. So she saw them being stolen from the palace and sent to England. It's not a good story. It's not. It's not a nice story at all. But it's history. So it, Right. History I isn't mean, always pretty. No, it isn't. And it happens. And, so, you know, that's how they got into the UK. Exactly. The Pekins were developed in Peking, which, again, is modern Beijing. But here's where the Cochin and the Peking divide. Peking is more than 800 miles away from Shanghai, which is where the large Cochins came from. And again, like we said earlier, the cochin we know today, that enormous fluffy chicken, it's not exactly how it looked when it was exported from China. Breeders in both the U.S. and the U.K. worked on the breed and made it even fluffier like it looks today. But way back when we talked about the pig hen being broody and that being true bantam, the cochin's an Asiatic breed, which they are known to be. Yes, they are, all of them. So it's another thing that says that somehow they could have been taught. Exactly. Yeah, they could be. The only argument that I see that's indisputable is that the Pekin existed in their present form in 1860, and the Cochin did not. It was not the same chicken it is today. Before we finish this breed spotlight, this was the other, to me, interesting thing. There was another type of animal looted from the Summer Palace and sent on to Queen Victoria. The Pekinese. The Pekinese, right. Who, which I have had one. I know. I remember, Sarah. The Pekinese at the time was sometimes called the Pekin Pug, which made me laugh. Which, that's what they look like. Yeah. And they share some definite similarities with those Pekin Bantams, right? Legend says the dogs and Bantams were meant to keep each other company in the royal gardens. They were both bred with lots of fur and feathers to withstand the long, cold winters in Beijing. Essentially, they were created to be companion animals. Yeah. And I actually think they kind of look alike. A chicken and a dog? Yeah, but look, I mean, the Pekins, their fur drags the ground. I see that, but not in the face at all. What has a beak and what has a nose? (laughs) No, No, not in the face at all, of course. Are there clubs? Of course. Let's tell them what they are, where they can find these chickens. I know we can find them at our swap. Now, yeah, the Maryland Poultry Swap. Yeah, there were more than one breeders. A lot of them. breeders Yeah, there. yeah. I don't even know if that's going to happen at this point. But. I don't know either. We'll have to check into that. So yeah, there's a Pekin Bantam Club of Great Britain, a Pekin Club of Australia, and then in the U.S., it's the Cochins International Club that does both the large fowl and the Bantams. All of them maintain breeders' list. The Pekins are relatively easy to find. Most of the large hatcheries have them. Here's the kicker. You have to get grow outs if you want to make sure you're going to get a boy or a girl. Otherwise? You're going to get a boy and a girl or whatever. Straight run. Yeah. It's Otherwise all straight, straight run. run. I mean, when they're little, you're not going to be able to tell what they are. Exactly. So you have to get a grow out, which I've always said is fine. Yeah. And if I have my little bantam run, I'm going to be good with that. What if you ended up with a roux? If I had a little bantam roux, I think I'd be okay. Yeah. But- Coach of Bantams. Can't I say think it. I might have to call them Pekins from now on because the history. Might be opposite on what we. The history tells me that these are Pekins that but they're I'm a distinct so used breed. To calling them Coach and Bantams. I'm a creature of habit. I, I know guess. it's okay. It's hard to change. I like to say Pekin, and again, I feel like the history really does show them as a distinct breed. I they're, see an argument for both sides. I'm more of a person of habit. I you've called them that for years. I've and called them that, so it's, it's hard to let hard. go of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the historian declares separate breed. <laughs> <laughs> it was really interesting to do that research. And again, Miss Crowed, I really admire her. She came through in a she big is, way. You like her. I do like her. I really would like to do some more research on her. Have you heard of Strong Animals Chicken Essentials? 
They make natural supplements for your flock. Strong Animals has used plant-based products and natural approaches to promote the health and vitality of backyard flocks. Their products contain organic essential oils, prebiotics, and other natural ingredients to support the immune system and digestive health. Give your chicks and chickens what they need to thrive with Strong Animals health products. Visit GetStrongAnimals.com today. Okay, so now let's move into our main topic. Yeah. And today for our main topic, we sat down with Libby Seidel and spoke to her all about the red mite. Before we bring Libby in, I'm just going to make a note that the red mite is really common in the UK, but it can also be found here in the US. Yeah. And it's somewhat like bed bugs. Like, it's disgusting. It is. They're clear when they're small until they have a blood meal. Ah! I know. And then they show up as red. So Libby tells us all about them, what to look for, and how to get and rid of them. she's an expert on the red mite. She really Lushes. is. This conversation, oh my goodness, it, I was itchy. And Libby was even like, Chrissy's scratching everywhere. I'm I like, know. I know. It's, it's creepy. But it's good stuff. So give it a listen. So give it a listen and enjoy. <laughs> so yeah red mites red mites so yeah when we're talking about red mites kind of i think it's important that we get off to a good start what we are not talking about is red spider mite that you find on plants and in your garden this is right, very right. specific to chickens so if you see a mite and it and you can see its little legs and it's bright red that is red spider mite that's not what we're talking about we are talking about dermonitis gallinae okay which is the latin name for red mite and it's very much involved with poultry and birds okay and it doesn't discriminate it likes them all it really does but interestingly not ducks which is so cool so if you really hate red mite also yeah yeah they hate the oils actually all the the kind of oils that come out in the skin um red mite hate that which is great so if uh, if you just absolutely hate red mite or if you've got a coop where you've got red mite in it and can't get rid of it and wondering what to do with it get some ducks Wow. wow. Do they repel the yeah. red mite, basically, because they don't like that? Yeah, style? they really do. Red mite oh, absolutely crazy. hate ducks, which is great because I love them. Uh, ducks, that is not red mite. hate red mite. <laughs> but I love ducks. So, uh, we that's need a win -win. the ducks to have the little superhero cape on. Yeah, yeah like a little cape. With an R on it. With an R, R and an M. That would be so yes. cool. <laughs> so we do have red mite here in the U.S., but it's not as prevalent here as it seems to be in the U.K., Absolutely. It's huge here in the UK and in Europe, actually. So after sort of predation from foxes, badgers and dogs, red mite is by far the biggest killer of poultry and, and also will have the biggest effect on health of any of those animals. Did they die from anemia or sepsis Absolutely. from a skin rash? So anemia? there's lots of different, yeah, lots of different ways that chickens can die from red mite. I have to say it's not hugely common in domestic flocks that chickens die from red mite, but one of the main ways that they die is through diseases because obviously the red mite is like a reservoir for disease. And obviously when the red mite bite the chicken and drink the blood, they pass diseases. But yeah, through anemia. What is, are some is of one the pathogens of the that they carry? Basically, sorry. anything that is carried through any of the birds, they can pass on. So oh, wow. everything from mycoplasma, coccidiosis, marics, the whole thing, they can transfer. Oh, man. Holy moly. They don't live on the host. They only feed on them at night, correct? Yeah, that's right. They're an ectoparasite. And this is why they're so tricky to treat, because they don't actually live on the chicken. They like to live in the house of the chickens. So they like to live in any nooks and crannies. Wooden houses is particularly difficult because the wood tends to, to be quite soft. So basically anywhere where two pieces of wood meet, so at the end of a perch, corners of a nest box, anywhere like that. You viewers can't see this, but Chrissy's scratching, so she just can't bear us talking about it. I can't, I can't deal with it. <laughs> oh, no. I have to say, I mean, as much as I hate red mite, you can't help but be slightly impressed by them because one red mite can become 28 million in perfect conditions in just eight weeks. So the way that they breed, so the life cycle is really, really short. So they go from being born to growing to being big enough that they can feed. 
to reproducing and laying their own eggs, which then hatch within this sort of seven to 10 day cycle. They lay 300 eggs at a time. So as you can imagine, the growth of them is absolutely exponential. And this is what the difficulty is that by a lot of the times that people realize they've got red mite, they've really got red mite and it's become quite serious. So I think with anything, it's about being really, really vigilant. So where do they lay the eggs? They lay the eggs in the wood where they live? That all happens Absolutely, there? yeah. So wow. all the little nooks and crannies. So there's, there's certain conditions that red mite love. They love it dark and they love it warm and they love it slightly humid. So wow. nest boxes are absolutely perfect. And their top favorite place to live would be, so if you had a wooden coop with a felt roof, like with sort of plywood underneath, you lift the felt off and it's, it'd be like a Hilton hotel for red mite. Absolutely oh, covered them. that's not good. I it's it's like just so visual. gross. Holly's freaking out. That's true. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. That's true. I have a pretty strong stomach. But that that's not good. It's, that's it's good not good. Right there. So once they get the red mite, we have to be able to take care of the chicken. So that's where you're saying it's so hard because we can't get them off the chicken because that's not where they live. Is it better just to get a new coop if you have them in your coop? Okay, so I think the first of all is probably good for us to talk about ways of working out whether you've got them. So when I first got really interested in red mite, I had this fantastic conversation with Dr. David George from the University of Newcastle. And he was one of the co-authors on a white paper that was all about pest management strategies for red mite in sort of European commercial flocks. We were discussing different ways that scientists detect mite. And my goodness, they were very varied and convoluted and some pretty high-tech stuff. And I sort of slightly flippantly said, oh, you don't do the hot water bottle trick then. And he said, what's the hot water bottle trick? And I said, well, you just get a hot water bottle, you know, just a normal rubbery hot water bottle. You fill it with hand hot water. You seal it up. You put it in the nest box. And you can do this at any time of the day and night. You uh, walk away, go and have a cup of tea. And then by the time you come back, you go and have a look. And if it's covered in red mite, you know you've got red mite. If it isn't, you know you don't. And he said, you're kidding. I said, no, 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 that's that's how we do it. He, he said, that is absolutely genius. I wish we <laughs> thought of that. And I said, well, the thing is, in the process of doing it, of course, you're also blowing out. So red mite are really, really loved. They want body temperature. So, you know, 37.5 degrees centigrade over here in the UK, um, whatever your normal body temperature is in Fahrenheit in the US. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So that's what they're looking for. And they're also really attracted to the CO2 in your breath or in the chicken's breath, more to the point. Right. So, of course, as, as you're sort of huffing and puffing while uh, leaning over, putting the, uh, <laughs> the hot water bottle in there, it works fantastically. So that is my go-to tip. If you remember nothing else from today, that's how you test for red mite. Wow. If you're starting to see that your chicken's having some little sores on them and they're not acting quite correctly, they're a little bit slower, that's time to bring out that hot water bottle, stick it in the nesting box. There's lots of indicators for red mites. So one of them is that your chickens will be more lethargic. So you'll notice them sleeping more. They won't seem generally as energetic. So they might be slower to come out in the morning, a bit slower to put themselves to bed. They might look cold a lot of the time. They may stop laying they will certainly be looking quite anemic. So you'll notice that the comb isn't as red. Quite often, you might sort of see problems coming out the other end, if you know what I mean, where they're just obviously not eating so well and so on. So yeah, wow, it's very sad. It is so sad. What are the things we can do in the coop if we don't want to start over with a new coop? Let's say you've got a plastic coop. So let's start with the the simplest option. If if you've got a plastic coop, you should be able to just take your coop apart, wash it with hot soapy water, and that should be enough to completely eradicate the red mite. The beauty of a plastic coop, of course, is that you can dry it straight away. You put it all back together, jobs are good. And so once you've got rid of the red mite in the coop, now bearing in mind that the red mite are only active at night. So the chances are that if you're doing this during the day, there is very few red mite on your chickens. Most of them will be in the coop. So if you've treated the coop, you've got rid of it. So plastic coop, very, very straightforward. Wooden coop, much more tricky. So if you've currently got a felt roof, you need to get rid of that straight away and ideally burn it. What we recommend is that on top of the plywood that you actually put some corrugated material. So here in the UK, we call it on July. So it could either be a bitumen coated felt, it could be plastic, we really don't recommend metal or tin, purely that when the rain hits it, it makes a really like ting, ting, ting sound and it's yeah, quite yeah. a harsh sound and it can really stress the chickens out. Whereas when we find if you use a bitumen coated felt or you use the plastic, then it tends to make more of a soft splat sound when the rain hits it. So that would be much better. 
So that's the first thing you need to do. My absolutely favorite thing to use in a wooden coop is, you know, the steam cleaners you get that you do your tiles and your grout and everything yes. with. So yep. quite often a floor steam cleaner will come with like a handheld option. So this is where you get a jug of water and you get an electric cable and you, you go all the way out to the coop with it. And basically you want to put it on the sort of the most pointy nozzle that you've got. You want to rank that thing right up to the hottest setting and basically blast hot steam in every single nook and cranny. So if you've got sort of overlapping wood, obviously you need to get into every single overlap. If you've got tongue and groove, you need to get into every bit of tongue and groove. If you've got battening behind the battening, both sides, everything. It's not a fast job but it is extremely effective and you will need to repeat that a few days apart. So oh, that Lord. is by far the best thing to do. But obviously your coop will end up a bit damp at the end. So ideally do it first thing in the morning to give your coop time to dry. And yeah, I think, you know, to be honest, that that by far is the most effective thing to do. Wow. That just makes me think I would want to set my coop on fire and say goodbye to it. Yeah. Every year, I kid you not, particularly on Facebook, people do, it's almost like a sort of ceremonial thing, a bit like setting fire to a, you know, Viking barge, I think. Yeah, it tends to be the cheap Chinese imported coops as well that tend to go up. But yeah, people just, it's just too much of a fight. And if you don't get rid of red mite in your coop, you are never going to get rid of it off your chickens. <sighs> Gertie's over here agreeing with Gertie, everything yeah. Libby says. If anybody hears a chicken, it's Gertie. It's Gertie. Gertie loves Libby. <laughs> she loves Libby. She talks so much when we talk to Libby. She does. So when you say felt roof, I was thinking those sort of cheap coops. Are you um, talking felt or no shingled? That was my question. So what about where we have the shingle roof with the roofers felt underneath? Well, we just have to pull the shingles off to check? Yeah. I mean, anything where you've got more than one layer on a roof is going to be a problem. Now, the reason that the corrugated, nobody can see this, but I'm actually, I'm doing the kind of corrugated wave motion with my hand. So if we could all just join in with that, that would be great. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So the reason that the corrugated works so well, because obviously it keeps the plywood underneath dry, but there's a lot of airflow through. And the red might hate that. They hate airflow. They hate light. Okay. So they're going to really hate that. So that's why that works really well. But anything where two bits come together. So for instance, if you had tarpaulin over for plywood that's also going to be a high risk thing wow this is something you do not want to get we do have a material here i've never used it on a coop my husband and i used it on a sheep shed it's called andorra and i think it's asphalt derivative but it's a softer material the undulating panels and then you buy these strips that go underneath it to seal have you known what i'm talking yeah, about? yeah almost like a sort of polystyrene foam type strip Yes. Yes. So yeah, th that stuff sounds very much like the Ondulin or the Coraline that we have here in the UK. Ideally, you wouldn't use it with the foam strip because okay. what you're wanting is airflow to come up between that corrugated material and, and the ply. Gotcha. And actually, we didn't use those strips when we built the sheep shed because you want the circulating air there too. Absolutely. So, okay. Yeah, I want the ventilation. So now that some of us have burned our coops down to the ground, we need to move on to our chickens. What can we do to help our chickens get through the problems that have been caused by the red mites? Okay, so something that everybody should be doing all the time, completely regardless of red mite, is providing a dust bath. So the way that chickens stay clean, obviously, is not soap and water like it is for us. It absolutely is dust baths. Dust baths can have loads of different components to them. And the following would kind of be my sort of perfect choice, I suppose. So diatomaceous earth, which I know can be a little bit contentious. With diatomaceous earth, you do need to exercise a bit of caution. Uh, for us, it's not something ideally we want to be breathing in. And you could argue it's not something we want our chickens breathing in. However, given the short lifespan of chickens relative to us, it's actually highly unlikely to cause anything sinister. The main thing is you don't want to be getting it in our eyes. I have rubbed diatomaceous earth in my eye and I don't oh, recommend no. it. Uh, <laughs> that oh boy. is not good. Yeah. And the reason that basically it made my eye sore is the exact same reason it's so brilliant against red mite is that basically it's these little microscopics, but very sharp little sort of powder. And, and actually when you feel it, it just feels like talcum powder, but on a microscopic level, it is quite jagged. So yeah, don't do that. that that's not a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> the other thing you want is something like kiln dried sand. So the kind of sand you would put in a sand pit for a little kitty, something like topsoil again, from compost, but you want it to be quite dry. So it might be worth sort of laying it out if you can on a tarpaulin or something just to dry it out in the sun and then add to that. And the other thing that we always recommend is wood ash 
from a wood fire so this yes, is my yes, my kind of one of my favorite fire. things actually yeah wood burners are huge over here lots of people have got wood burners you can't use coal ash it does need to be wood ash and wood ash works in a couple of different ways so one is that the particles very small and it coats the exoskeleton of the red mite and it suffocates it the other way that it works is it's extremely alkaline so it's really important that this dust bath stays dry <laughs> because yeah. otherwise you have an alkaline solution which is not good but it basically almost chemically cleans the skin which is it's just fantastic but obviously you're only putting a relatively small amount in there so it does work fantastically is it wood ash that you use to make lye soap absolutely it is yeah wood ash is part of the soap making process yeah so when you put rainwater through wood ash you make lye so uh yeah Oh, wow. Okay. So exactly the same. You really yeah, you want to be keeping it dry. dry. But you need to give your chickens access to that all the time. I mean, it literally is as important as layers, pellets or water. You wouldn't think twice of, of having that available to your hens all the time. And, and it's absolutely the same for the dust bath. So that's the absolute first thing. And to me, that is the most essential of all of them. If you've got chickens that are already showing signs of suffering with red mite, then getting a multivitamin tonic down them, particularly that's got iron in it, is really, really important. So we have a company over here, Rooster Booster, who makes an additive called Poultry Cell. It is a blood booster. It does contain palatable iron. Every now and again, we hear folks using this as a regular vitamin, which it really isn't. It's specifically for something like this. For anemia, because that iron content is so important. That's one product over here that would definitely help to add in if you have a strong case or even a mild case, and you're noticing that the chicken is acting a little quieter than normal. It could be due to the anemia, and that's when you would use it. Right. It is literally a blood booster. It's a blood booster. Absolutely. And sometimes you find that hens have got into such a state where things have got so out of control that they're just not eating and not drinking. And so it is really important, even if you just pipette some sugary water into them just to get them started on that process and to stop that downward spiral. And they do come back. They're amazing. It never fails to amaze us how resilient they can be. Yeah. I mean, here in Europe, something like 70% of commercial laying flocks have red mite. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's huge here. Which, of course, is a slight issue if you are rescuing hens, because, of course, when they catch hens up to be moved from the barn where they're being kept to go to new homes, they catch them up at nighttime because, as we all know, it's much easier to move a sleeping hen than it is to move an awake hen. And, of course, that's the time when the red mite are most active. So, actually, if there's ever a chance that red mite are going to end up out of that barn and on your chicken, it is going to be on those rescue nights. So, it's kind of important when you do get rescue hens that you give them a really thorough check for red mite. So, I always recommend checking around the vent. Under the wings is often a good place because it's not so feathery there. And on the nape of the neck, I always think are good places to look. 30 agrees. The places you would be looking for poultry lice as well. Absolutely, yeah. Yes. But I mean, there are lots of other treatments. So, of course, have you guys heard of androlis mites? No. No. Oh, androlis mites are very exciting. So, androlis mites are a predatory mite that like to eat red mite, which is really exciting. So, you can oh, buy wow. these mites. They come in a little packet. We have them here in the UK. And basically, yeah, you can put them in there and they gobble all the red mite out for you. They are so cool. We have fly yeah. predators for black fly, but I have not seen predatory mites like this. These are fantastic. I need to look these up. They are quite good. I have heard somebody saying, well, what stops your chicken from eating the androlis mites? And I'd love to say that I know the answer to that, but I don't. There are other ways. So in the commercial settings, what they do is when they empty all the hens out, they tend to have a complete clean down of the barn for two weeks and then they get a fresh batch of hens in. Now, of course, we don't have the opportunity to completely clear down our setups. So obviously the systems that we use do need to be slightly different. One of the things they do is they heat the barn up to 44 degrees centigrade, which is about 111 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, interestingly, if you can get a barn to that temperature and maintain it at that temperature for a couple of hours, it will kill the red mite. The red mite are unable to live in that temperature. So could you do that in your coop? Could you put a heater in and get it that hot? I think it's definitely a possibility. So I, you know, if you could cover the whole thing in say a blanket or something and put a fan heater, absolutely nothing with a flame or with a bowl, right. but you'd have to be super careful. You'd have to be doing it in the daytime and just standing there watching it. But yeah. yes, potentially you could. And this is why the steam works so well, because of course it just kills the mite instantly. Yeah. 
The other thing that I've heard is apparently really good for red mite. And this is really good that if you're super short of time and you're just completely overwhelmed and you don't have all the other things, is a can of hairspray. Not with your birds in it. You do need to aerate it well afterwards because hairspray is basically just like kind of liquid spray glue. Everywhere that you think that the red mite are going to be or that you've seen the red mite, you're just spraying hairspray and it just kind of gums them up a bit. Can we use Aquanet? (laughs) (laughs) Probably the product we use most as a preventative, because as much fun as it is going around with flamethrowers and steam guns and stuff, it's not always massively practical. There's a few different ones. So we do one called Resistamite. There's also one called Red Stop. Both kind of work a bit similarly. They're both completely natural, which is really exciting. So there's not nasty chemicals in them. It's sort of a medication that you put in the water, which is great. So you know that all your hens have had it. So I really love anything that works like that. And the hens drink it and basically it sort of changes the blood chemistry. So with the resistor mite, the way it works is it doesn't hurt the hen. There's no egg withdrawal. But when the red mite bites the chicken, the blood they drink coagulates within the red mite and they kind of dehydrate. The red stop is not dissimilar, works in, in a kind of similar way, but they're really exciting. So having these in-water treatments, it's fantastic. And you can use them preventatively as well, which is really exciting. So the dosing rates tend to be slightly different, but the fact that you can use it all the time is great. And generally, I say to start using them when the clocks go forward in the spring and then stop using them when the clocks go back in the autumn. Red stop you can find on Amazon. Fantastic. Libby, we love talking to you. You just made talking mites fun. How did you do that? <laughs> right? And only very slightly itchy. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Gertie loved it. She's like, I'm going to go tell everybody what Auntie Oh, loves. she's so funny. I can just see her little face watching me. She's just the best. She's so gorgeous. Thank you once again for talking. Oh, it's been an honor. Thank you for asking me. Sharing all your awesome knowledge about the red mite. We love your Instagram. If you want some good chicken knowledge, on a Friday, we always do a did you know? So always some cool little facts about chickens. I'll have all of Libby's social media linked in the show notes. Give her a follow. Yes. Thank you so much, Libby. We love you. Bye. 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 Thanks. Thanks again, Libby. We really, really appreciate you taking us through all of that. And we're itchy. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> so Okay. So now it's time to move on to cracking the eggs. Cracking those eggs. Libby left us with a really amazing recipe. This is Libby's mum's fluffy omelette. She had to come back with something after talking about that creepy mite forever. This more than makes up for it. These are delicious. Thank you, Libby, for sharing this great recipe. So we'll just go through this quickly. I mean, it's not super complicated. So you're going to separate your eggs. Yolks in one bowl, whites in the other. And you're going to whip these whites to soft peaks. Yep. And that's a big part of it. Once you have them at soft peak stage, you're going to carefully fold the beaten yolks in. Mm -hmm. And you can leave them a little streaky. You want to blend them and keep as much of that volume as possible. Because when you want the egg to finish, you want it to be thick. Exactly. And at this stage, you don't want to put your add-ins in there yet. You just want egg. Right. Preheat your broiler. Now, the UK... It's a grill. That's right. Here, it's a broiler. And so you want an oven-proof skillet. I recommend cast iron. It can go from stove to broiler, oven. It's easy to use. It's true. I actually have enameled cast iron, which, you know, does all the same things. You're going to pour your eggs in your oven-proof skillet. You're going to arrange your additions on the top. What you're going to do is cook the omelet over like low to medium heat until the bottom is cooked, which mm-hmm. I guess is like four or five minutes maybe. Yeah, somewhere it not take there. too long. From there, you're going under the broiler. And you're going to broil it. Right. <laughs> like I said, it's actually pretty easy. You're going to broil it for a few minutes until the top of the omelet is cooked, the cheese is melted, your toppings are warm. Yeah. Look up fluffy omelets it's, online. Yeah. And you can see a picture of it. It's really cool. It would be a good one for a brunch if you're having someone over yeah. that you want to impress them with yep. something that's simple but looks good. You can do a whole bunch of add-ins and you can make it your own. It looks really impressive when you fold it over. You it know, does. You've if got you the, look at the pictures. Yeah. You've got your cheese and stuff in there. I think this would be amazing with broccoli, tomato, and cheese. <laughs> It probably would be. Probably would be. Okay. So thank you, Libby, for this amazing yeah, it's, and easy recipe. It's easy and really great. And it's a new way to just fix an egg. Yep. Show us your pictures if you decide to make it because this is a good one to take pictures of. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to move on to retail therapy. Retail therapy. Yeah. yeah. So this week's retail therapy 
we brought in our vintage because you know we love vintage. Absolutely. And we're going to do vintage egg cups. Yes, we are. This was fascinating. Collecting egg cups is such a thing that it has its own name. Okay. It's called Pasilavi. I just can't. Can't we just say we're collecting egg cups? You can, but collectors are also called Pasilavists. I mean, what does this have to do with egg cups? I, I just thought it was fascinating that they have their own name. There are so many egg cups out there. There are some books on it, too. You can actually find books written on the collecting of I egg cups. I can't believe we waited this long to do this retail therapy. I know. Because this is a highly collectible thing. Absolutely. And you can collect new egg cups, vintage egg cups, all different kinds. Yeah. We're talking about vintage in this, but you're right. right. You can still get them. They're not as popular here in the U.S. as they are in the U.K. or Australia or Canada or essentially and that's a change. the rest of the world. It's like, oh, my God, the U.S. is doing this. We're not going to yeah. do it. But now we're kind of like, hey, we're behind the wheel. On we this are. One. Yeah. I mean, you can find them here, especially vintage cups that were used more in the past. Like soft boiled eggs used to be popular. I oh, would yeah. say like pre-1970. And you need to eat them in something because they're going to spill. Exactly. So you can find the egg cups from so many makers in all different styles, like wood, ceramic. You can find the figural cups that are really fun. Go on eBay. Yeah. On Etsy. There are so many fun cups. Look at the set. They're chickens. Yeah, you can well, find... Well, that's a duck. Okay. But... This is Martha Stewart's collection. Uh-huh. They're adorable. They're I really would not cute. expect anything else besides adorable from Martha Stewart. Right. But look at some of these. They're so cute. I feel like the chicken-shaped egg cups are pretty darn common. So I was at the Pyrex Fest last spring. The one I found was a chick, and I had Gertie with me. That uh-huh. day yeah, I remember there. that. And I think I only spent like $8 for this. It's a little chick. Yeah. It's vintage. I love it. I display it. I don't have a lot of these. This is something that if I go into finding chicken egg cups, uh-huh. I could get hooked in. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I mean, they're very collectible. Like you had the chicken shaped ones over there, but you can find them in fine china. Oh, yeah. You know, really intricately painted. You're looking at a photo of shelves and shelves of egg cups. It's somebody's yeah. collection. I mean, that's kind of the one neat thing about collecting them. They don't take up a ton of space and they're not usually that expensive. No. They're kind of a good thing to collect. Like $8 from the one I bought. It was vintage. Yeah. And they actually look really good on tablescapes. They do look really good. It's something I could go down a rabbit hole with this. Easily. You start looking these up and you're like, oh my God, there's one there. There's oh, one yeah. There. And you can find them across the board, eBay, Etsy, all those different places. All those places. Some of them come attached to a saucer. Yeah. And that's I've to hold them. your egg spoon or even the top of the egg. You know how you yes. cut the top of the egg off. The egg spoons, I suppose you could collect egg spoons too. They're just like long-handled, smaller spoons. It's like a rabbit hole. Like once you start collecting the stuff, you never want to stop. Here's the thing I like to do. Besides eBay, Etsy, if you're bored one day and you're like, you have nothing to do, which hardly rarely ever happens to us, but if you're sitting there and you want to look it up, they're fun to look at. They're not that expensive. Or, you know me, in thrift stores. If you find one in the wild, that's even better. That's even better. Yeah. Yeah. Yard sales. Yep. Thrift stores. Any of the above. Somebody who's emptying out an old house. Yep. It's more like finding a treasure. So, yeah, you can find these everywhere. I might be starting to collect them myself. I have a few. I'm just going to tell you very quickly. There are three kinds of egg cups. There's the classic single that just holds an egg. There's the custard cup, which is shaped more like a little cup. I mean, apparently sometimes poached eggs would come in those as well, the custard cup. The other type, which is really interesting, is called the double or the American. Right, Why I know. Double have to be the American because it's a double-sided cup. It has a smaller cup on one side and a bigger cup on the oh. other. So you would serve it almost upside down yeah. with the egg on the top of the smaller part, and then when you cut the egg off, let's say it's soft boiled, yes. cut the egg off, turn it the other way, yeah. and dump the soft boiled egg in the cup part of it. Yeah, I can see that. I thought that was kind of interesting. It's, again, a rabbit hole you jump down. It is. I mean, there's so many cool ones out there. If you're ever just sitting there and you want to look up something, look up Just vintage, Google it, yeah. Just Google vintage egg cups. If you have any really cool ones, send us pictures. Oh, yeah. We would love to see them. We love, love, love to see the vintage stuff. So let's end this with talking about who makes them. Why don't you tell everybody who makes them? Lefton. The Lefton China Company, which was Japanese export, okay. they make a lot of figural cups. So like the chicks, little chickens. Sometimes there are things that look like people. Clowns? Yeah, uh, yeah there's a clown. I yeah. found a clown. Yeah. I found a clown. Oh, yeah. We got Fire King making them. 
they make the jadeite double a cup which, which is, is pretty really cool, cool. yeah jadeite everybody knows us too i love right the blue willow pattern which is one of my china patterns i found a couple of them yeah and you can find some beautiful ones made by just popular china companies Oh, yeah. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of these. Literally thousands, yeah. I mean, and, and flowers and figurines and old made in Japan. That's the stuff that I collect. Right. All different kinds. Just anything that you're looking for, you can find. And here's one with spoons. There you go. Yeah. The set with the spoons. You could collect the spoons, too. So you just look at Google. You look at images. You can have fun looking at these. If you have any, somebody turned an A cup into a pin cushion. cushion. That's a good idea. That's cute. Yeah, you can craft it and turn it into something else. There's the people. We're it's looking like, at images right now. Yeah, it's just, there are eight cups that it looks like, a, you know, shoulders and a head. Yeah. And you put the egg on There's top of their double. head. The American double is actually a little different. What you were looking at was like a double double. That is definitely a strange That's one. That's a strange one. This one's one. cute. Little bird. That's the made in Japan. That's what I would collect right there. You know who else made them? Fiesta Ware. Yes. Fiesta Ware is more modern. Yeah. But they definitely do make them. I mean, you can go modern. You can go vintage. Apparently, the custard cup type was often made by hotels and railroads. Yeah. And people collected them like as souvenirs. Mm -hmm. Have fun. Go look at them. If you're looking for something to collect, you're into chickens, you're into eggs, this is a good thing to do because there are plentiful and there's all different kinds. And you can use them if you want. And you can use them. And you can use them for displays for, for your eggs. Yep. To cook your eggs and eat them out of. It's really a cool thing. So, should we tell everybody what we're going to be talking about next week? Oh, next week. It's a big week for us. Our main topic is an interview with one amazing lady. We're kicking off Women's History Month chatting with Jane Howarth. We are so excited to bring you this interview. So, so excited. Jane is the founder of the British Hemp Welfare Trust. Our crack in the eggs is blueberry scones. And our retail therapy is the British Hen Welfare Trust online shop. It's cute and amazing. Filled with lots of treasures. What should we tell everybody to do? Hug your chickens. Every day and kiss them too. Don't forget, we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. If you'd like to see more of us, please follow us on Instagram at Coffee with the Chicken Ladies. If you'd like to help us grow the podcast, please leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, please visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash coffee with the chicken ladies. Thanks for listening.